Good morning. Let's bow in prayer together as we come to the word of the Lord. Father, we have just sung of your worthiness to be praised, and we recognize as we think about servanthood today that you are worthy of the very best of our service. And so, Father, we pray that we would be attentive to your word right now, that from it we would gain perspective on what it means to serve those who you have put us under and uh, help us in serving them to recognize it truly is the Lord Christ we are serving. So uh, guide us as we look at your word this morning and be honored and glorified by our response to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a word in our text this morning that might be getting a little familiar now. This will be the third week in a row that we have seen this word in our text. And uh, the first one, uh, it was applied to widows. The second time it was applied to elders. This time it is applied to masters. You know what the word is? Honor, honor. And so uh, something struck me as I looked at this word honor this week. Uh, And since you know a little Greek, right? This is Ulysses, he's a little Greek, and so now you know a little Greek, right? So since you know a little Greek, the Greek word for honor is time. Time, uh, T-I-M plus a long A, time, uh, honor. Does that look at all familiar? Somebody's name that we've been hearing since the beginning of April begins with that, right? Timothy, Timothy. And so Timothy is a compound of Timae plus Theos, which is God, so honor God. Timothy is the one who honors God. Got any Timothys here? Any Timothys? In the, we got the Timothy. <laughs> and so that name means one who honors God. It's a great name to confer upon a child, Timothy. And so uh, what struck me this week is that Paul sprinkles this word, Timé, uh, all through this book that he is writing to Timothy, Uh, the one who honors God. And so five times in this brief letter, uh, Paul puts this word Timé in as he writes to Timothy. And we have seen three, I just mentioned, the other two bookend the letter, one in chapter one, one in chapter six. And the person who gets the honor in those bookends is God himself. And so in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, Paul has just explained, explained how this amazing grace of God reached even him, the chief of sinners. He bursts into doxology and says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that just just worshipful? It is so wonderful. And that that greets us in chapter 1. And then what happens in chapter 6, Paul has uh, just been anticipating the return of Christ in all of his glory, and he bursts into doxology again 
and says, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. We, we can just enjoy a little worship in that right now. You know, this, this book ending of uh, the, this letter of 1 Timothy with this idea of honor. And the first and the last and highest honor goes to God and God alone. And we want to make sure that nothing we do in our lives brings dishonor to him. And that is something the text is going to talk about this morning. But I believe that as we give honor to those to whom honor is due, as Paul says in Romans 13, that in doing that, we're ultimately giving honor to God. You know, this threefold use of honor in the middle of First Timothy is put into perspective by the honor that goes alone to God at both ends of this book. So as we give honor to those to whom honor is due, we're ultimately giving honor to God. So we look at these two verses today, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, and think about giving honor to slave masters. Okay, does that seem at all odd to you? Uh, we're living in a culture, a culture that is tearing down statues of anyone who ever owned a slave, and we're probably thinking, well, wait just a minute. Why is Paul telling Timothy to remind slaves to give honor to their masters? Why doesn't Paul tell all masters to release their slaves? Well, a couple of reasons I can point to. One is it was a different culture. It was a different culture. Uh, a lot can change in 2,000 years. I think about the changes I've seen in my lifetime alone, and you say, well, Ken, that's a long time. You're older than dirt. No, no, not quite that. Um, but changes I've seen in my own lifetime, uh, uh, does anybody here remember blue laws, for instance? Blue laws. Blue laws were, were laws enacted to keep businesses closed on Sunday in order to promote worship. Blue laws were in effect all over the place when I was a kid. All the stores were closed on Sunday. Nobody would think about opening a store on Sunday. Sunday's for worship. Blue laws. Okay. Give you another one. My grade school sent us home for lunch every day. Can you imagine it? Would that work today? Wouldn't work today. No one's home, right? But they sent us home for lunch. Moms were there to prepare lunch for us. We'd get back on the bus and go back to school for the afternoon. That was interesting. Um, my friends and I could play outside without being watched by a parent. Uh, it's sad to see those days are pretty well gone. A lot has changed in, in 50 or 60 years. A friend of mine actually brought a loaded shotgun to school for show and tell, and it was okay. <laughs> he is now a school district superintendent, and the doors of his schools have metal detectors, right? A lot can change in 40 or 50 years there. It is a different 
culture. A lot has changed over 2,000 years. But not only is it a different culture, it was a different slavery. It was a different slavery. We can't read a 21st century understanding of American slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries into this. It's a different slavery. The type of slavery that took place in this country prior to the Civil War is called chattel slavery. Chattel slavery, where people were bought and sold and treated as property. They were considered less than fully human. This is a different sort of slavery. What's described in 1 Timothy is a form of indentured servanthood indentured servanthood, similar to what Jacob did to get his wife, Rachel. Remember that one? He worked seven years for Laban to get her. And then he got swindled by Laban and had to work another seven-year contract to get the right one. So the Greek word that is used here to describe this slavery is the word doulos. Doulos. Interesting, I, I picked up one of our our um, sanctuary Bibles and noticed that it's a little different from my 2007 ESV. My 2007 ESV says, uh, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And the 2016 one that we have in here says bond servants, not slaves, bond servants. I think that's a really good translation. Bond servant. I think that says it much better than slave without calling to mind the American slavery experience. Um, in New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bond servant. That is someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years. In Caesar's household, the contract went 14 years, but in the popular culture, seven years. He served for seven years, and when the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master, and officially declared a freedman. A slave in Roman times could own property, could even own other slaves, and could save up to buy his freedom ahead of that seven-year contract. Some people then preferred slavery to freedom because of the security it offered. And so when their seven-year contract was up, they'd re-up because it was a place that they were appreciating. And selling yourself into slavery was often a means of gaining Roman citizenship if you were a foreigner. It was a different slavery than what went on here in America prior to the Civil War. So a different culture and a different slavery than what we would be familiar with. And we know that in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was pastor, there were slaves. And in that church, there were former slaves. And in that church, there were slave masters, slave owners. And in many cases, it would be hard to tell them apart. A slave could hold any of a number of jobs. They could be cleaning your home or keeping your business's books. They could be tutoring your children or they could be serving as an aide to a senator. 
So how does a slave relate to his or her master? That's the question. How is a slave to a bond servant to relate to his or her master? Think about it this way. Uh, Anybody here uh, ever been in the same church as your employer? Maybe somebody is now. Uh, Anybody here in the same church as somebody you employ? Um, And have you ever been in church leadership over somebody you report to at work. In verses 1 and 2, Paul takes up this relationship between slaves and masters, both of whom are in the church at Ephesus that Timothy is pastoring. I remember having the opportunity to speak in the Protestant chapel at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, a long time ago when I was a young lieutenant. And uh, in the congregation that Sunday morning was the assistant division commander, a brigadier general. Now, I wasn't a chaplain. I was an artilleryman. uh, But I was not used to admonishing brigadier generals. Never done that before. Uh, The army is a very stratified society. And the Roman Empire was highly stratified as well. And suddenly, in the church of Christ, both slaves and masters are brothers and sisters in Christ. You can see the opportunity for trouble. So as we look at this passage, we we look at it recognizing that none of us are slaves, none of us are slave owners, but we also recognize that we are called to serve people. Each one of us is called to serve people. Can't get around that. Um, And so uh, it it may be an employer, it may be our spouse, kids, it may be your parents that we're called to serve. So the question then is, how will we serve? We think about the situations in which we're called to serve the people in our lives and, and we need to think about how we can serve them to the glory of God. So these two verses show two different scenarios. And the first is when the person that you call to serve is not a believer. Verse one, when the person's not a believer. So let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. When the person you're called to serve is not a believer. So Paul said a slave was to consider his or her master as worthy of all honor. Though you are free in Christ, you may still be a bondservant, still obligated to serve your master for the duration of your contract. And you treat your master, whoever he is, and however he treats you, Paul says, with all honor, all honor. Instructions in 1 Timothy begin with slaves that don't have Christian masters. And Paul shows um, concern that dishonoring those masters would discredit the gospel. He says, do this so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The reputation of God and his gospel are at stake. So how would that look? Our behavior as we serve is a reflection of the Lord we serve, the Lord we represent. 
Has anyone ever said to you, well, if that's what Christianity's like, count me out, right? That's like the ultimate insult, right? You know, if, if you're an example of what Christianity's out, I don't want anything to do with it. Okay, you know, our culture is looking for reasons to discredit the gospel. And unfortunately, our behavior sometimes gives them plenty of ammunition. From the perspective of a slave, Paul is saying you can't look at your unbelieving master and say, he's not a believer, so I really don't need to listen to him. He doesn't have anything to say to me. He's, he's, he's not a believer in Christ. Paul says we, we can't do that. We need to show them all honor. Think of it from the perspective of the master. Picture a group of Roman slave owners who get together weekly for coffee. Uh, one of them says to the others, you know that slave I picked up last month? Yeah, the one that uh, is so devoted to Jesus? This guy's amazing. He's amazing. Uh, he doesn't just work when I'm watching. This guy is working all the time. Uh, there's something different about this guy. It's kind of like he's not really working for me. It's like he's working for this Jesus that he's talking about. And, you know, he's actually been talking to the rest of the staff lately about this Jesus. I, I really don't mind, uh, frankly, if, if the rest of them picked up the same motivation he's got. I could let them run the place by themselves. I wouldn't need to do a thing. Maybe there's something to this Jesus story after all. Or, what would that conversation sound like if the slave was one who didn't honor his master? You know that slave I picked up last month? Yeah, you know, this one that's devoted to Jesus? Worthless. Just worthless. He hasn't done an honest day's work yet. He's got this air of superiority about him. As he talks to me, as he talks to the rest of the staff, can't get along with them He's always preaching to them and to me like I'd be interested in hearing what he's got to say. I might if he were a better employee, but as it is, he's got nothing to say to me. Whatever we do in life, we do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. How we do it makes a difference, not just for us, but for the sake of the gospel. We are Christ's representatives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, starting at verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our good works are to be seen, not to make us look good, but to make God look good. People see our good works and the glory bounces off of us and goes to God. Our good works are to make him look good. Paul's letter to Titus that was read uh, earlier this morning, another pastoral epistle, speaks about how to make the gospel look good, how to adorn the gospel by how slaves relate to their masters. Listen to 
chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the doctrine. Uh, the, the word is cosmeo. We get cosmetic from it. We, we make it beautiful. Make it look good. But uh, uh, we need to think in terms of how we serve our unbelieving bosses, unbelieving friends, unbelieving co-workers. How we do that can enhance and adorn the gospel, make Christ look good, and the teaching won't be reviled. But there's more. Paul goes on in verse 2 to speak of bondservants who have believing masters. When the person you're called to serve is a believer, verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. When the person you're called to serve is a believer... Paul had uh, written to the church at Ephesus, this very same church, a few years earlier on the same subject. In Ephesians chapter 6, it was read for us earlier. Let me just call your attention back to it. Uh, if you have your Bible, flip over to Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5, where Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or as a free person. And then masters on the other side of the coin, do, not, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So Paul is speaking to both slaves and masters there, both of them in the church, and he says to slaves, Bond servants, obey your master as you would Christ. Imagine that. Anything that that master would tell them, Paul's saying, treat those as the words of Christ to you. Obey as you would Christ. That just is worth thinking about for a moment and allowing to settle in as we relate to our employer, can we relate to him and, and serve that person as we would Christ? Um, when he asks us to do some menial task that we think is beneath us, can we do that as serving Christ? Can we serve our spouse as we would serve Christ? When uh, they do that annoying thing again or where they need help again or where we need to uh, do something for them again, can we look at that as though we were serving Christ? 
Kids, when your parents ask you to do something and uh, ask you to pick up your room or something like that, can you do that cheerfully and gladly as though Jesus were asking you to do that? Paul says, do it with a sincere heart, not just when they're looking. So no duplicity. Uh, Mean it when you do it. Be real. Be the same person when they're in the room and when they're not in the room. And he reminds us that both you and the person you're called to serve have another master that you're accountable to. Yes, you're both brothers in Christ, but your positions haven't changed. Don't hold back on honor toward people who are over you that are now your brothers in Christ. They still have authority over you. Your Christian boss is still your boss. I heard a man from India talk about his childhood once. He said they have a word that would come over into English as daddy sir that they would use when addressing their father. Daddy, sir. Conveys a warmth, conveys a respect as well. And he talked about how once he spoke to his father and called him the daddy part without the sir part. And his dad cuffed him and said, don't forget the sir. Fathers are to be loved. They are also to be respected. That was the reminder. And a master may be a brother in Christ, but he is still a master. We can't assume a familiarity that isn't honoring. Your employer may be a brother in Christ, but he's still your employer. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, but you're still under your boss's authority in your workplace. So don't dishonor those who are in authority over you just because you are brothers or sisters in Christ. In fact, Paul says we should serve them, and the word is this doulos in verb form. Uh, Serve them, be a bondservant to them, all the better because they are brothers. In other words, they are pursuing the same goals you are. They're interested in extending and advancing the kingdom of God. Can you help advance the kingdom of God by giving your very best service to this Christian employer? Can your servant heart help your spouse do their work better? Kids, can you help your mom and dad around the house with things so that they can give more time to what they do for others in the name of Jesus? We can help them advance the gospel and advance the kingdom of God by helping others who also want to advance the kingdom of God. And Paul tells us at the end of it all, teach and urge these things. Help people put these things into practice. Why? Because it makes Jesus look good to those who don't know him yet. And it helps others who also want to advance the kingdom of God. There's a familiar story in Matthew chapter 20. I won't read it. Let me just summarize it for you. It's in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Uh, Mrs. Zebedee, mother of James and John, a good Jewish mother, comes to Jesus 
with a little request for her boys. Jesus, would you let my boys sit next to you in your kingdom? You know, James, John, you know, if you would let them sit next to you in your kingdom, I, I would appreciate that. I'm not picky about which one sits on which side. I just want both of them right there where the action is. I, I, I want both of them right there uh, near the seat of authority. I, I, I want both of them in influential positions. And Jesus replies, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know. She misunderstood his kingdom. She expected it to be an earthly, physical kingdom. Jesus, the conquering Messiah, setting up his headquarters in Jerusalem with thrones and servants and all that. She wanted her boys right there at the epicenter. She misunderstood his kingdom. And she also misunderstood the nature of authority. It's not about those who can assert themselves most strongly. It's about those who can serve the best. And Jesus gave himself as the ultimate example. In that same passage, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It's not the way we're going to operate. It won't be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The word is diakonos. We get deacon from that. Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your bondservant, your slave, your doulos. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think about the people that you're called to serve. Maybe your boss at work, maybe your spouse at home, maybe your parents, kids, or any of the countless other situations that are going to come up this week where we will be called upon to serve somebody. And I want to encourage all of us to think about new ways that we can do that. New ways that we can serve those people as though we were serving Christ. Because our service can make Jesus look good to those who don't know him yet. And our service can also help a fellow believer to advance the kingdom of God. And our service also follows in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It takes faith to decide to do that takes a step of faith to say, I'm going to do that this week. We're not guaranteed any particular result. We might not see any positive result. That's why it takes faith. All we know is that that's what Jesus asks us to do. And as we say yes to him, we step out in faith and we say, I will trust you for the results. So how about it? Is there somebody that Christ brought to mind for you this morning that you'll be serving sometime this week? Will you step out in faith and serve that person as though you were serving Jesus himself for the sake of his gospel and the advance of his kingdom? Pray with me, will you? 
Father, I, I pray that you would put somebody on our mind, each one of us, that you are calling us to serve this week. And I pray that the service we render would be service that we would give to the Lord Jesus himself if he were asking. Help us, Father, to serve those who don't know you in order to adorn your gospel as representatives of Jesus. And help us to serve those who do know you in such a way that together we can advance the kingdom more effectively. And Father, help us to see Jesus as our example and to know we can do it because he did it and asked us to do the same. And we'll trust you for the results. In Jesus' name, amen.